How many grateful the Lord loves them? The Bible says, greater love than no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and paid the price of our sins so we can go to heaven. I'm so grateful for that. Glad to have you this morning. Thank you for coming. Uh, many of you are faithful members or regular attenders. You come every Sunday, and I just thank you for being here today. It's an honor to have you with us. Many of you are visiting for the first time. It's an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for coming. Many of you watching by live stream watch us every week. And uh, many of you are staying home because of health issues. We hope you get better and come back and join us. Thank you for joining us also. And some of you have never been to our church by live stream. You send letters, you send emails, send how much you enjoyed the service. Welcome again back with us. We're glad to have you with us today also. Turn your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 19, please. Matthew 19. As you're turning now, I just had a little situation here. I was sitting here for the service and got a little nervous. In fact, you probably saw me. My eyes got real big. And they said, what are you talking about, Pastor? I started feeling vibration in my chest here. Now, many of you know that I have a pacemaker. It's a combination of a, a pacemaker and defibrillator, which means that my heart gets out of sync or stops, it will shock me back to life. And I felt vibration there, and I got really nervous, and I realized it was my phone in my pocket vibrating. <laughs> <laughs> so my phone's right here in my pocket. On, so I was so relieved. <laughs> It was something simple as that. But anyway, I asked my do uh, doctor, I said, how would I know if the defibrillator kicks in? He said, it's be like getting kicked in the chest by a horse. So that was not the case. <laughs> and so that was just my phone and so grateful for it. But anyway, I'm glad you're here this morning. Thank you for coming. I've been doing a series of messages on truth, standing for the truth. We looked at issues that are pertinent to the Bible and also some very controversial issues. Last week, we looked at uh, the truth about drinking, and that is very controversial because Christians disagree on whether it's okay for Christians to drink or not. We saw what the Bible says about Christians drinking alcoholic beverages. Today, I'd like to talk about another controversy issue where there's many different opinions and talk about the truth about marriage and divorce. Marriage and divorce. Many different opinions, even among Christians, on the issue of divorce. I have found divorce is a very sensitive and emotional subject because some of you have been divorced. Some of you are from a divorced home, a broken home. Some of you have children been divorced. You know the emotion, the pain, the suffering, the grief that comes from divorce. So it's a very emotional subject. And I have found Christians disagree on the grounds for divorce. And so, in fact, I have found uh, to many Christians, divorce is a doctrine, what I call situational theology. What do you mean, Pastor? Their belief in divorce depends on what situation they're in. Do I have a happy, fulfilled, satisfied marriage? I don't believe in divorce. But if I'm miserable and unhappy, then divorce becomes an issue. What about you? What do you believe about divorce? What do you believe are the grounds for divorce, if there are any? So today we'd like to look at the truth about marriage and divorce. And in Matthew chapter 19, we're going to look at this subject. We're going to first of all look at the philosophy of that day. What people believed about divorce in Jesus' day in Matthew chapter 19, uh, verse 3. Jesus was asked a question about the, by the Pharisees. Look in verse 3, please. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him. 
and saying unto him, Is it lawful, it means is it biblical, based upon the law of God, for man to put away his wife for every cause? The Pharisees asked this question because marriage was a burning issue of that day and wanted Christ to commit himself and thus divide the people against him. There were two main views among the teaching of the rabbis concerning divorce. And they wanted Jesus to tell his opinion, so maybe he took one side, the other side would be against him. So they're trying to cause division. And the two views in Christ's day, first of all, there were two rabbis, one called Shammai, another called Hillel. The followers of the rabbi Hillel believed that a man could divorce his wife for any cause. That if I'm unhappy, I could divorce my wife. If she burns my toast, I could divorce my wife. If whatever she does, I don't like her anymore, I could divorce her. That was the view of the Hillel rabbi. The followers of the rabbi Shammai held a strict interpretation that marriage could only be broken by adultery. So you've got two extreme views among people that considered the believe in the Bible. What's your view? Even among Christians today, there's different views. In fact, today, probably as much like in Jesus' day. Some Christians feel like no matter what the issue is, if I'm not happy, I don't love her anymore, I doesn't happy anymore, I'll divorce this person and look for somebody else. What's your view? As a pastor, listen to me carefully, please. I want what's best for your life. I want God's blessing to your life. I want you to know what the Bible says about this issue, not my opinion, what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. How many believe that God knows what's best? How many believe that God wants what's best? How many believe, though you may not agree with what God says, and may not be comfortable doing it, is still what's best? There are less hands that time. (laughs) My friend, God knows and wants what's best for your life. And that's my desire, even in this issue of marriage and divorce. So no matter what situation you hear this morning, maybe you're single, maybe you're engaged, maybe you're married, maybe you're divorced, maybe you're divorced and remarried. It's my desire for you to have God's blessed. And maybe you've done things wrong in the past. My friend, you cannot change the past. But from this day forward, what I encourage you to do is to establish a Bible standard for your marriage and want what's best for your life. And my friend, God wants what's best, and even in your marriage and the issue of divorce. So uh, Jesus here went beyond the rabbis and reminded the people that God's original plan for marriage was established in the Garden of Eden. And so let's look at the original plan. The original plan that God established in the Garden of Eden concerning marriage is here in verse 4. We solve the question asked of Jesus by the uh, Pharisees. Now look in verse 4. Here's the original plan. And he, Jesus answered and said unto them, have you not what? Stop right there. My friend, he did exactly what you and I need to do. He says, what does the Bible say? He didn't give his opinion, though his opinion would be God's word because he was God. If somebody asked you about divorce, don't give your opinion. Get what does the Bible say? Let's go back to the original plan. That's what he, have you not read? Have you not read what the scripture says? So he goes back to the original intent. Back in the book of Genesis, he said, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause... 
shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the twain shall be what? One flesh. There's three words define God's original plan. This is not in your notes, not on the screen, but listen carefully. You're welcome to write them down. Three words in verse 5 that define God's original plan. The first word is the word leave. The word leave. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother. If I'm counseling a young couple that wanting to get married, and they still live with their parents, I say, when you get married, you need to leave. You need to establish a home of your own. That's God's plan. Remember, as a teenager, my dad told me, he said, Dave, when you get married, you're out of here. <laughs> it's time to leave. I didn't understand the time, but I realized it was biblical at time to leave. And the reason for that is because God's institution of marriage. In the home, the Bible says the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And if you're living at home with your parents, my friend, you're not the head of the wife, head of the home, your dad is. And so there's conflict there. Your father is still the head of that home, and now you're there under his authority. There's a problem there. You can't be in the head of your wife if that person is. Also, you, you women understand this. Every wife needs a place of her own. Because a wife has a place for everything, and everything has a place. And if you live at home with your mother, she has a place for everything, and you don't have that. So to make the best and get the most out of your marriage, God said, number one, you need to leave. The word leave there has the idea to leave behind, to depart. It even means to abandon, forsake. Number two, the second word mentioned there in God's plan for marriage is the word leave and the word cleave. It says, for this call shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. The word cleave there means to stick to, to glue. <laughs> I was reminded this other day, my granddaughter came to me, had a little toy that she broke. I said, Granddaddy, can you fix this? I went into my kitchen, I got it, what called junk drawer full of all kinds of stuff. It has super glue in there. So I pull out the super glue and a little tube that was used before, and I went to squeeze it, and nothing happened. So I really squeezed it, and it, went, <laughs> it went all over my hand and my fingers. And if you've done that before, immediately your fingers stick together. And I tried to get them apart, and literally I had to pry them apart and pull the skin off my finger. One finger was cleaved to the other. And that's what the Bible says. A man shall leave his mother and father and cleave, be glued to his wife. That's what it refers to there. The third word is not there, but it's defined there. The word leave, cleave, and the word weave. The word weave. It says, the man shall leave his father and mother shall cleave to his wife, and the twain shall be what? One flesh shall be weaved together. This is talking about, but more than that, talk more about than just the physical aspect of marriage. That means the husband and wife, now that they're married, are one. It's the only time in the mathematics. One plus one equals one. <laughs> they're one in Christ. In fact, 1 Peter 3, verse 7, it says they are heirs together, of the grace of life. Well, God brought his grace upon you as an individual Christian. Now he does it as a couple. That means all decisions should be made together. Financial, any decision you should not make by yourself, do it together because now you are one in Christ. You should leave, you should cleave, and you should weave. And notice he goes on to say in verse 6, Wherefore, based upon this, they are no more twain, means two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put what? Asunder. The word asunder means to separate, divorce, or to leave one's husband or wife. What God is saying here, Jesus is saying, the original plan is wedlock is a padlock without a key. That's right. When I do counseling for a new couple, in the process, the first thing you need to do when you get married, take the word divorce and throw it out of vocabulary. It's not biblical. It's not God's desire. It's not what God wants for you. Take it and throw it out of vocabulary. What God has joined together said putting on asunder. And notice here in this, I mean, interesting, I got my little wedding vows book that I use when I perform a wedding. And I'd like to share some of the things that I asked the couple to do. Uh, first of all, I asked them to make a promise. And then I asked the groom, and first of all, I said, now I'm going to ask you to promise that you'll accept a Bible standard for your marriage and that you'll set out to build a Christian home. I look at the young man, do you so promise? I look at the young lady, do you so promise? Then I asked them this. I asked the groom to speak to his wife-to-be. Will you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? To live together according to God's principles of the holy state of matrimony. Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in every experience through which God shall lead you? And forsaking all others, that's the leaving, forsaking all others, keep yourself on under her as long as you both shall live. Then hopefully he says, I will I ask the bride to be the same thing. Then I go to the wedding vows. Many of you are familiar with these. I look to the young man. And I ask her, I said, turn and face your wife-to-be and start this. I love you and believe in your God's gift to me. I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish even until death. To this I promise to be true, and with a deep sense of thankfulness to God, I accept my new role as your husband as long as we both shall live. Again, I ask the wife to do the same thing. Now, by the way, what is the glue that keeps a marriage together? We saw leave, cleave, and weave. What's the glue that keeps you together? Some people say it's love. It's the love. But how many realize you can fall out of love? Some people say, well, it's the children. Now, that's very important. But sometimes that doesn't keep people together. So what is the glue that keeps a couple together that will never change? It's the vows, the promises that you made to God. When you get married, the Bible says what God has joined together. Notice God has part in that. And when a, Christian, when a couple makes vows, they make it to each other and also make it to who? To God. How often that is forgotten. When you vow to that person, you said, for better, for what? Worse. People get divorced and the worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and health. I know a man who divorced his wife because she had cancer and could not deal with it. Sickness and health. And we're going to say, until what do we part? Death we part. How people forget that. And they say, well, pastor, I don't love her anymore. What's that got to do with it? Pastor, I'm not happy. What's that got to do with it? My friend, you promised God you would stick it to death. And how often will you forget that? And so, pastor, I got divorced in my past. You can't change the past. But take God's word from the situation right now and move forward with it. Apply scripture to where you're at now. 
That's what God would have you do. And so it's the vows you make to God that keeps you, that's the glue that keeps you together. So basically, did you notice it is God that instituted marriage? It's not man's plan. Not something man concocted and say, let's do this. It said what God hath joined together. He did that. There are three divine institutions in the Bible. Anybody know what they, know what they are? The first one is marriage, the home, Genesis chapter 3. The second one is human government, Genesis chapter 9. And the third one is the church, Ephesians chapter 3. Those are three God-ordained institutions. And I believe marriage is the greatest. You know why? Because it's the oldest. It's the first one God established. And so God instituted marriage. He said, well, therefore, God the joined together. Let not man put asunder. Here the Bible gives, gives at least four purposes for marriage. I hope you write them down. Four purposes for marriage. The first one in the Bible, to continue the human race. To continue the human race. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaking to Adam and Eve. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and what? Multiply and replenish the earth. My friend, children should come after marriage, not before. So he told them, be fruitful and multiply. So the first purpose for marriage is to continue the human race. Be fruitful, multiply. Number two, the second one is companionship. Companionship. Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. Just this past week, an individual whose spouse passed away over a year ago and was telling me how lonely they're getting. And they thought about trying to find another companion, another spouse. And they said, am I wrong for doing so? I said, no. God said it's not good for you to be alone. He understands that. Nothing wrong with that. So for companionship. But also the third purpose for marriage is to avoid fornication. To avoid fornication. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication means sexual immorality. Let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. In other words, do you, do you realize sex was created by God? Sex was God's side. Nothing wrong with sex. It is a beautiful thing in God's sight as long as it's done in the bounds of marriage. Outside of marriage, it is sin and is wrong. Hebrews 13.5, marriage is honorable. And the bed, the marriage bed is undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. God judges sex outside of marriage. In fact, the very first command God gave Adam and Eve, you know what it was? To have sex. What do you mean? Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> that was God's plan. So to avoid that, God created you with sexual desires. Nothing wrong with that. And God's given you means to satisfy them in the bounds of marriage. So he says to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. Number four, letter D, the fourth purpose for marriage is to show the relationship between Christ and his church. To show the relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5, 
Paul quotes what Jesus quoted way back in the book of Genesis, Ephesians 5.31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they, the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. What he's saying here, the relationship between a husband and his wife, biblically speaking, is a picture of Christ in the church. Now, we'll talk more about that next week. By the way, this is a two-part message. Don't get worried. I'm going to go too long. I'll continue this next week. But that's the purpose, another purpose, to show the relationship between Christ and the church. So we saw God's original plan. Now look at God's original purpose. God's original purpose. In Matthew 19, again in verse 5, let me quote it. Christ said, for this cause, shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, the twain shall be one flesh, wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. What he's saying here is one man should wed one woman, only death should break that union. One man should wed one woman, only death should break that union. You said that in your vows, to death do we part. Go with me now to Romans 7, please. Romans 7. Keep your finger in Matthew coming back to that. Romans 7, page 1588. Romans chapter 7, in verse 1. Thank you for turning with me. Matthew 7, verse 1. Interesting. Talking about how death is the means which Scripture acknowledges uh, the break of that union. One person told me, Pastor, I don't believe in divorce, but I do believe in murder. <laughs> oh, okay. But anyway, Romans chapter 7, look at verse 1, please. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over man as long as he liveth. Verse 2. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Verse 3. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. 1 Corinthians 7.39. It's not in your scripture there, but you can write it down. 1 Corinthians 7.39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. So that was the Lord's response to the Pharisees' questions. Now go back to Matthew, please. Now the Pharisees said, wait a minute. That's what you may say, but what did Moses say? Now they wanted to create a conflict between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Moses because the teachings of Moses was very important to the Jew. So look in chapter 19 of Matthew, look in verse 7. So they understood what he said, that marriage is a lifelong commitment only divided by death. When God pointed together, put together, no man should put asunder. So they say in verse 7, they said to him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her, that means put away, means to divorce her. Notice his response. 
He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered, allowed, permitted you to put, her, uh, put away their wives. But from the beginning, it was not what? So, in other words, I, interesting, one commentator said, the sinners are always looking for excuses. And the Pharisees were no different. They appealed to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, trying to show that Christ and Moses were in conflict. It's important that, they, that we realize why Moses gave the command and what the law really stated. So turn with me to Deuteronomy, please. Chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Keep your finger in Matthew. Don't lose that. Deuteronomy 24. Page 317. You got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Here is the scripture that the Pharisees were referring to to try to show that what Christ was saying is contrary to what Moses said. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It said in verse 1, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let, her, let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it to her hand and send her out of the house. And what is this uncleanness? Not talking about adultery. Because what was the price of adultery in the, under the law? Death. So not talking about adul adultery. Talking about something that does not tell us what it is, but some uncleanness, something in his wife he doesn't like. And if you divorce her, it says, let him write her to build a divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of the house. Verse 2. And when she departed out of the, his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Verse 3. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement, and given her a hand, and sent her out of the house, or the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife. Verse 4, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she's defiled for this abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance. The problem was, there were so many marriages falling apart among God's people under Moses' rule. And basically, uh, Moses was not commanding divorce. He said, Christ said, Moses permitted it. Moses, because the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. This passage does not command, commend, condone, or even suggest divorce. Rather, it recognizes that divorce does occur and gives guidelines on how to deal with it. So Moses, because the people refused to do what God said, because of the hardness of your hearts, he's allowed this to happen. But at the beginning, it was not so. So Moses was not commanding divorce. Moses command, now let's look at Moses' command concerning divorce. Two things. Moses did command that when a man divorced his wife, she was to be given a bill of divorcement. That's what he said. When Moses did command not to get a divorce, but when a man divorced his wife, she was to be given a bill of divorcement. Next, if a divorced woman remarried, she was forbidden to return to her first husband. If a divorced woman remarried, she was forbidden to return to her first husband. Now, 
I want to stop right there and move on next week. Next week, we're going to look at the teaching of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the verse. Go back to Matthew, please. And ask your question, and I'll answer it next week. I don't want to rush this. I want you to understand what the Bible says concerning marriage and divorce. In fact, I've got 10 minutes. Can, I, can you give me 10 more minutes? 10 minutes before 12? All right. Let's look at what Jesus said. Then we'll move after that. Go back to Matthew, please. We saw the philosophy of divorce in Jesus' day. We saw God's original plan. Then we saw the command of Moses. Now, look at the teaching of Jesus Christ concerning this. Look in chapter uh, Matthew 19, verse 9. Look what Jesus said. I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery. Notice here, Jesus included what we call the exception clause. He says there, whosoever shall put away, that means divorce his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, give, uh, commit adultery. In other words, the only grounds to divorce that Jesus gave was adultery. But there's something interesting here. Don't miss this. The exception clause. Again, let me read it again. Whosoever shall put away divorce his wife, except to be fornication, shall, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her that is put away, doth commit adultery. So Jesus gave one exception. But listen carefully, please. This exception is given in Matthew, but not Mark and Luke. Let me say that again. This exception given in Matthew, but not Mark and Luke. Turn with me, please. Go now to Mark. Keep your finger in Matthew. Mark chapter 10. I want you to notice what Jesus said here in Mark. Very important to understand this. Otherwise, Jesus gave one exception, a ground for divorce, and that was fornication. The word fornication means sexual immorality. Basically, if your wife cheats on you, commits adultery, you have grounds for divorce. That was the only exception Christ gave. However, this exception was given in Matthew, but not Mark. Look in Mark 10, page 14, 12. Mark 10, verse 10. You read the verses prior to this, the same situation we read there in Matthew. Now it's recorded in Mark. But notice what he said in Mark 10, verse 10. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same manner, and he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. What's left out? The exception clause. There was no exception given. He gave no grounds for divorce. Though he did in Matthew, but not in Mark. Go with me now to Luke, please. Luke chapter 16. Page 1464. Page 1464. Luke. In Luke 16, verse 18. Luke 16, 18. Look what it says here. Whosoever putteth away, means divorce his wife, and marries another, commits adultery. 
And whosoever married to her that's put away from her husband commits adultery. What's left out? The exception clause. Now come here, please. So Jesus gave one exception to the Pharisees in Matthew. That one ground for divorce was adultery. But in Mark and Luke is left out. Why? I think the answer to that, to whom were the books written? Who was Matthew written to? The Jew. Exactly. That's saying over and over again. He quotes Old Testament scripture to show that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Who was Mark and Luke written to? The Gentile. Now the difference is, you understand, was the progress of the wedding ceremony. The wedding ceremony was different from the Jew to the Gentile. Listen carefully, please. The Jewish wedding composed of three parts. The betrothal, the wedding ceremony, and the consummation after that of the physical act of intercourse. The betrothal period could last up to one year. Basically, in Jesus' day, if a marriage performed generally, the mother and father of the groom got together the mother and father of their bride, and they both agreed that these are our children are good for each other. Let's allow them to get married. Many times they would be money given from the groom to the uh, parents of the bride, or maybe land and maybe animals, but a legal agreement was made, and once that was made, they were legally married. And though the husband went back and lived at home with his parents, and though the wife went back and lived with her parents, for a period of one year, it was called the betrothal period. During that one-year period, the groom would begin to prepare a home for his wife, either to build a home, buy a home, make things ready for marriage. And for a period of one year, at the end of that one year, there was a great possession. Once he had everything in ready for to be married, a great wedding ceremony possession, uh, the groom would come with all his families and go to the home of the bride. And there have a big wedding ceremony that could last up to a whole week of celebration of the marriage. Then after that, the husband and wife come together and consummate by physical intercourse. And it is believed, because now how's that different from the Gentile? By the way, when you got married, did you have a one-year period of betrothal? Were you legally married and then had the wedding ceremony? No. You were not married legally until you said, I do. So there was no betrothal period, only the I do, and then after that, you had your honeymoon. And it's believed that reason he gave an exception to the Jew and not the Gentile, that during that betrothal period, if the wife was found unfaithful, then he could give her a bill of divorcement. Pastor, show me that in the Bible. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Go now with you, please, to Matthew chapter 1. Here's a biblical example of a, a young, young lady found with child during the betrothal period. Matthew chapter 1. You ever heard about Mary and Joseph? Matthew chapter 1, page 1341. Matthew chapter 1, page 1341, verse 18. So now the birth of Jesus Christ was on the wise when as his mother Mary was what? Married. Expouse to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. What happened? 
Joseph was back home with his parents, preparing a home for his wife. They soon had wedding ceremony. And during that betrothal period, as he prepared a home for his Mary, guess what? Mary was found with child. And it goes on to say, verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, was not willing to make her a public example and was minded to what? There's that phrase, put her away privately. It means divorce her privately. But verse 20, but while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee, unto thee Mary thy what? Wife. They were married, spouse, husband and wife. For that which conceived in her is of the what? Oh, can you imagine the relief off of Joseph's shoulders? My wife, who I thought about divorcing, has not cheated on me. In fact, she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And so it was during that betrothal period that when she's found with a child, that he was going to put her away, divorce her privately. But after, after the wedding ceremony, after the consummation, if she was found pregnant, uh, uh, um, adultery, the penalty would be death, according to the Mosaic law. So basically, God gave one exception to the Jew and not to the Gentile. Interesting, isn't it? Now let's close with this. So among Christians, among conservative believers, many believe that the only grounds for divorce is adultery. And how they get around this, here's what they say. You ask them, why did have an exception in Matthew, but not Mark and Luke? Their answer is this, well, what Christ said here, he doesn't need to say over there. Doesn't need to say it twice. So they say the grounds for divorce among Christians is adultery. That may be your view. If that's your view, you've got a lot of good people on your side. My view is the other view. That God made it clear to the Gentile different than the Jew. But whatever, whatever your view is, I want you to understand, God takes marriage very seriously and believes in the permanence of marriage. Now listen carefully. Again, by the way, how do we know that? Do you remember how the uh, apostles responded to that view? He said there in chapter 19, verse 10, his disciples said unto him, if the case of a man and his so, uh, being so with his wife, it's good not to marry. If marriage is forever, then, you know, maybe it's good not to marry at all. <laughs> How many of you understand that? And so when I do a wedding mar marriage uh, counseling, I tell them to take the word divorce, study the vocabulary. You'll make a decision. You're going to promise God Almighty each other. You're going to live with that person for the rest of your life. And come, no matter what comes, you're going to stick it out. Now, listen, please. He said, Pastor, what about abuse? What about when a husband beats his wife? Do they need to stay married? Listen to me, please. I do not recommend divorce. I strongly suggest separation. Get out of the house while your health is still good. And get out of the house, be separated for a period of time for the purpose to get counseling, to get back together according to God's plan. That's my advice. I'm not saying if you're being abused to stake it out. That's not wise. And so I do not suggest divorce. I have never and I never will suggest divorce because I don't think that's what God would have. And so if you're here today and you're divorced, 
See, Pastor, I look at my life, I did not get biblical divorce. Listen, you can't change the past. Now, how many are grateful that God forgives? What you should do from this time forward is I'm going to establish a Bible standard for marriage. And whatever relationship I'm in, I'm going to purpose from this time forward to seek to honor God, fulfill what Scripture says, and ask for God's help in doing so. My friend, that's honoring God. So no matter where you're at, single, engaged, married, married and divorced, or divorced and remarried, whatever your situation is, take what God's word says from now and purpose, Lord, I want to honor you. I want to do what your word says. It may not be easy, it may be difficult, but whatever God calls me to do, he'll give me the grace to do. And I will seek to honor your word in doing so. Now listen, please. Next week, we're going to look at Paul's instruction on marriage in the New Testament. Paul gave us new revelation. He said something about divorce is not mentioned in the Old Testament or even mentioned by Christ. We're going to look at that in, in next week. Then I'm going to conclude next week, biblical reasons why a believer, born-again child of God, should never seek divorce. Please come back next week. By the way, can I ask you again, do you still love your pastor? <laughs> I realize, I look out there and I see some, some faces that are not being comfortable. I, I, as your pastor, I love you. I want what's best for you. And it's my job foremost to preach the word that you might see what God says and that you're determined to purpose from this time forward. I want to honor God. I want to purpose to serve him, honor him. So that's my desire. So please come back next week continue our study on marriage and divorce, and we'll review from what we covered this week, look at what Paul taught about it, and also reasons why a born-again child of God should never seek divorce. All right, look up here, please. We're talking about establishing a biblical standard for your marriage. Because how many believe there's so many different views on marriage and divorce out there? That's not only true of marriage, that should be also true about salvation. For salvation, we need to establish a biblical view of salvation. How many realize different views on salvation out there? So we need to go back to what the Bible says. Now, what man says, man has, you ask 10 men their opinion on salvation, you probably get 10 different opinions. Let's forget about man's opinion. Let's go to the word. Let me quote a scripture for you and wrap it up with this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Here we have a biblical perspective of salvation. Many of you know the verse. Can you quote it with me? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should what? There is the biblical view of salvation. Salvation is by God's grace, God's unmerited, undeserved favor. If God gave you and me, what we deserve, we'd have to go to hell. We're sinners. We've broken his law's commandments. If he judged us based upon that, we'd go to hell. But he didn't give us what we deserve. He gave us grace. How many are grateful for grace? Amen. For by grace you save through what? Faith. It's my faith, my dependence upon Christ, what he did for me that brings salvation. The salvation is not of yourself. Nothing of yourself, any merit or work or deeds of yourself are brought into salvation. It's not of yourself. And the Bible said it's a gift. How many like gifts? 
Salvation is a gift from God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then it says, verse 9, not of works. I had a person tell me one time I shared it with him. He said, Pastor, that's your interpretation. I looked at him, how do you interpret not of works? By the way, how do you interpret not of works? <laughs> Salvation is not by works, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because mercy has saved us. So my friend, your works can't save you. Your deeds, your behavior, your conduct will not get you to heaven because they will not pay for sin. And no matter how good you try to be, you can't be good enough. But the good news is God loves you just the way you are. And he sent a substitute, his son, Jesus, who came to this earth, lived the perfect life and died. And he died where? On the cross. And there on the cross, Peter said he bore our sin and his own body on the tree. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, God took your sin, laid it upon him, and God punished him for what you've done wrong. He died for you. He paid for your sin. He was buried, and he rose again. And God says, if you would believe when he died, he died for you. And trust him to be your savior, that you would not perish, but you would have what? Everlasting. When I first heard that, I go, whew. What good news. I'm a sinner. I deserve to go to hell. And I don't want to pay that debt. But Jesus paid it for me. And when he died there on the cross, he died for me, he died for you. And at the expense of his son, through his death, burial, and resurrection, God says, I'll forgive you. I'll give you eternal life and a home in my heaven at the expense of my son. Your part is to receive his son. But to as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Have you ever trusted Christ? So we need to, first of all, establish a biblical standard for salvation. Are you saved through grace, through faith, not of yourself, through faith in Christ? If you are saved, purpose from now forward. In every situation in life, even in marriage, I want to establish a Bible standard for my home. I want to establish a Bible standard for my marriage, for my family, my wife, my children, and so on, husband. I encourage you to do that. Therein you'll find God's greatest blessings. Therein you'll find his greatest rewards. Let's bow together, please. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, please. If you're here today in the sanctuary or watching by live stream, and you're not what the Bible says, you're not saved. What does that mean? That you've never been delivered from the penalty of your sin. You've never been saved from the consequences of the things you've done wrong as far as the payment for sin is death. My friend, you can be. Christ came for that very purpose. He came to save you and deliver you from the penalty of your sin. How did he do that? He paid the penalty for you. And he offers you eternal life, forgiveness, free. At his expense. Your part is to believe to receive him as your savior. And you can do it right now. Right where you're sitting in this sanctuary or right where you're at by the live stream, wherever you're at, you can receive Jesus Christ as your savior. And the Bible says the moment you do that, he'll forgive you and give you ever 
everlasting life. Eternal life, the Bible says. So, Pastor, you say, I've never done that before, but I like to do that. Tell God that. Talk to God in your own thoughts. Only he knows your thoughts. You cannot go wrong. Just say, dear God of heaven, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And because I've sinned, I've deserved your punishment. But God, I believe that Jesus was punished in my place. And the judgment that I deserve, that I have earned, he paid for on the cross. He suffered and bled and died for me. Was buried and I believe he rose again. And right here today, realizing I cannot save myself. I'm trusting Christ to save me, to forgive me, and to give me eternal life. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. My friend, did that make sense to you? Did you pray to receive Christ as your Savior? If you did, I'd like to know that. I want, I'd like to pray for you. Let me explain to you. I'm not going to have you forward. I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to put you on the spot in any way. But I'd like in one moment, not right now, but just a moment, if you did that for the first time, I'd like for you to raise your hand. Let me explain to you why. Raise your hand doesn't save you. I want to pray for you. My prayer for you doesn't save you. Christ saved you and you trusted him. But allows me to rejoice with you personally and allow me to include you in the closing prayer. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if what I said made sense to you, and for the first time you trusted Jesus to be your savior, well, no one look around with heads bowed and eyes closed. But simply raise your hand real high. Put it back down in case you did that today. Pastor, here's my hand. I trusted Christ. Would you pray for me? And what all? Pastor, man, would you pray for me? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Christian, whether it be for marriage or divorce or for any situation in life, how many say, Pastor, I want God's best. I want to do what the Bible says. And I want a purpose from this day forward to establish a Bible standard for my life. In every situation in life, I want to do what the scripture says and commit myself to God's to teaching and do what the Bible says. If that's your prayer, someone raise your hand so I can pray for you. Yeah, oh yes, all over. God bless you. God bless you. My friend, God will do that. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us a handbook for life. Thank you for giving us a book that tells us how to live our lives, including marriage. I pray that we will take what we learned today from this day forward, purpose to do what Scripture says, and ask for your help and guidance to do so. Father, we, so many people raise their hand saying they want to establish a Bible standard for their life. Lord, help them to do so, that when God's Word is clear on something, they'll set out to do that and ask for your blessing and help to do so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.